You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the design of the salon. My name is Sam Elkin, and I'm here with a bunch of incredible guests tonight who are going to be the stars of the shows. But um, before we kick off, I'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. I'd like to acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting today. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands that anyone is listening to a recording on of this event this evening. So thank you so much for coming. Um, we've got Jill Price here, who is the owner of Captain Darling Barbershop in Preston. We've got uh, Danielle Lugley. Um, PhD student who writes on the tattoo parlour. And to the end, we've got Simona Castricum, who is also a PhD student, as well as a brilliant electronic musician, a massive fan, um, and who writes a lot about the intersection of gender and architecture. So welcome to you all, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation this evening. Uh, so to kick us off this evening, I thought I'd start with you, Danielle. Um, I've been uh, reading your uh, excerpts of your PhD with great interest um, and I understand that it's focused on the uh, changing nature of the tattoo studio from the traditional um, tattoo parlour. So I'd love to ask you the question, what do you love about the design of a traditional um, tattoo parlor to kick us off. Okay. Um, I think what I love about the traditional tattoo parlor is how much history it has. Like it carries a lot of history within it. And it's a history that for a long time and maybe still today was not considered legitimate because it's part of working class culture. That being said, there's also a part of that history and tradition that is what I question critically and what the contemporary tattoo studios kind of challenge as well. Mm. It's interesting hearing you say um, that it's intimately tied with working class culture. Um, I, when I think of the traditional tattoo parlour, I do think about the, um, I suppose, in some cases reasonable and in some cases unreasonable links with criminality. Um, do you feel like that's influenced the traditional design or aesthetic of the tattoo parlour? Um, for sure. Uh, just clarifying that when we're talking about traditional tattoo culture here, we're talking about Western modern tattoo culture. So it's what, it's what started with the first tattoo shops in late 1800s uh, after the colonial encounters with indigenous people from the Pacific. So there's a lot of traditional tattooing in other places around the world as well with other communities. But talking about the specific tattoo, traditional tattoo parlor from the early 20th century, uh, it was a whole culture that was designed 
by a man for men. So it followed the patriarchal logics of the time. So when they first started tattooing, uh, it started among the sailors because they were the ones who had contact with the peoples from the Pacific Islands. So because it was something that was so masculine back then, like only men were part of the military, only men were sailors, only men were in those parts of the town. And if you're a woman in that part of town, you know what kind of woman that you are. So it became something that was developed by men and for men. Uh, therefore, the whole design of the tattoo parlor and the tattoo designs as well, they represented things that are part of the lifestyle and part of the aesthetic interests of those men that were developing that culture back then. So you see a lot of traditional tattoo designs that picture um, uh, the military motifs or cowboys or peanut ladies and gambling. So they were all part of the masculine lifestyle back then. And these are things that are not necessarily relatable to women who were excluded from the spaces as well. Uh, so if you look at the beginning of the 20th century, it was, there was not an association with criminality yet that much, that heavily, uh, because of the military associations with, um, with the sailors and people who returned from the war. It was more acceptable to sport tattoos um, pre-1950s. But then after a while, it became something that very associated with criminality. A lot of tattoo styles were developed in prison, uh, like the Chicano style that is something that we still uh, have today. So because of that association with criminality, and just because it's a subculture, it's something that was uh, fringe. So they wanted to make that clear in the tattoo studio as well, how that was counterculture in some ways. So the tattoo studio is the translation, is, la, is where this subcultural influences are made evident. So that can happen in different ways. There are different subcultures within the subculture there, but they all represent this kind of marginal lifestyle. And even like decades later, late 20th century, you see the tattoo parlors, the tr more traditional tattoo parlors, they uh, were not necessarily owned by criminals or people who had any association with gangs or anything like that, but they still wanted to put up that tough image. They still wanted to put up those references because it's something that is so symbolic of a lifestyle of rebelliousness that was in the imaginary of people most of the time. And um, in 2022, how have um, tattoo studios changed in terms of the look and feel and, you know, the experience of, of, the, of the client in the studio? How have things changed? Well, those traditional palaces, they're still a thing today. So you still find a lot of studios that uh, are very traditional in the sense that they preserve this aesthetics and this lifestyle. But you also see the emergence of several studios that uh, try to sp explicitly move away from that. So in the early, like in 1990s, when tattoos started becoming more mainstream, it was, it was something that people wanted to do because they wanted that association with the rebel lifestyle. And then you, uh, the difference that you see with the 2020, uh, even like from 2010 onwards, it, this is a client that wants tattoo, but they do not want to be associated with the subcultural lifestyle. They want to have the tattoo uh, with a multiplicity of possibilities of expression, and embodied expression. So the tattoo studios, they reflect uh, pretty much like that. They want to get away from those references. So most contemporary studios, they don't have any of those traditional tattoo references. They don't have the flash on the wall. They don't have uh, motorcycles and all those gendered elements, the hyper-masculine uh, elements that were 
typical and traditional tattoo palace. And many of them, you enter, you cannot even tell that that is a tattoo studio because it looks more like a beauty salon or a museum, an art gallery. So the spaces, they are kind of distancing themselves aesthetically, very obviously from traditional tattoo culture in a way to combat stigma, but also the way that I see in a way to be more welcoming to people who are not necessarily part of that subculture that not want to participate in tattooing. I'm really interested to pick up on the gender theme. Um, I know, I mean, you're a, a prolific tattoo artist now, I understand, and um, the industry has really been changed and is really being led in many ways by women and trans and gender diverse people as well as men now. Um, how has that influence changed the industry? Um, that it was a considerable difference in that sense because since tattoo was developed by men and for men, um, the aesthetic interests of women were not considered valid. So men were the ones who decided what kind of tattoo is the right tattoo, what is a good tattoo, what should be a tattoo. Men were the ones who decided who should get a tattoo or not and if you get a tattoo, what kind of person you are. So there was a lot of gatekeeping in traditional tattoo culture and increased presence of women and queer people really changed that in the sense that they created a space that they felt comfortable being in. Uh, so that opened the possibilities for the clients. I think that the presence of women uh, and queer people and more diverse demographics, it really talks in terms of possibility and opening up what tattoo could be like and what tattoos can do, which I think is a very important thing to consider as well. That like any type of body intervention, it's a place that can be a place of pleasure and a possibility. It's something that you can experiment with. So by making the interests that are not necessarily related to the hypermasculinity, by making those interests valid, um, it's, it's uh, both a cause and a consequence of that. Um, women felt more comfortable to occupy that space and then more women started responding positively to that. And I say women because this is the focus of my study, but we talk about queer, trans people, people of color as well. Uh, so it's a, in terms of representation, you see people occupying that space, people who look like you, and then you feel like you can be there because those, those people, the, 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 the whole space is for people like me. This is a very important feeling. And also feeling that whatever I decide to do, whatever I want to do in terms of tattooing, in terms of my own body, it's my own decision and that decision is valid. And has that changed the kinds of tattoos that people are getting? Yes. Um, again, I feel like because the studio is no longer that very strict definition of a tattoo parlor that is flash on the wall and has the only man behind the counter, if you have many possibilities of tattoo studios, you also have many possibilities of work that can be done there. Uh, so this is something that happens for other reasons as well. Like a lot of tattoo artists nowadays, they have a background in fine arts or design, so they bring those references as well. So tattooing is no longer a working class um, profession. A lot of people come from different backgrounds and bring that aesthetic information with them. But definitely the idea that you have a tattoo parlor that is full of possibilities instead of a restricted aesthetic tradition, it really makes you think of the possibilities that you can do in terms of work as well. I notice uh, just looking around, we've got a lot of tattoos uh, on the panel over here. Um, Simona, I was wondering, any thoughts from you? You've got some fascinating tattoos there. Um, 
what's your experience of the tattoo parlor as a LGBTIQA plus person and how do you see the, the spaces changing? Well, um, <laughs> well, I feel, I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm not going to go into too much detail about why I have the tattoos on my body, but, um, you know, I, I guess, um, I, I mean, my most recent experience with tattooing have been, I think, in queer spaces. Um, I was, it was really good about six or so years ago, it was like kick-ons would turn into like... Um, Stick and poke time. <laughs> but I feel like, the, like and, and this was before like places like um, Crucible Tattoos sort of like started, which is a queer tattoo place in Kensington, which is where I got one of my tattoos done. But um, or around about the same time. But for me, it was just kind of, it seemed like there was this sort of, yeah, we were sort of, that was a safe place to do that was at kick-ons, you know, but also like a place, I think, for artists to have a bit of a um, experiment, I think, but it almost sort of like turned into the salon, really. Um, but, you yeah, know, it was a very queer and a very trans kind of setting about it. Um, and then, yeah, and then eventually, I guess, um, yeah, I sort of started to get some more tattoos in in salons that were autonomously run by, by queer and trans people. And that meant a lot to me, I think, to just to know that, like, the person on the other end of the, of the, of the, the tattoo gun, I think, was, you know, I guess, like a trans person as well. And they understood perhaps the, the message or the meaning or why, you know, and I think that was a really important reason as to why I would get a, a tattoo done. Whereas... You know, when I got my first tattoo, it was just like, I'm a bar and bay, you know, and, you know, and I just, you know, I want something on me just to get it started, you know, and you, and didn't really have much of a choice back then, you know, it was, yeah, I just had to chat to this dude and be like, well, yeah, I, you know, I want something on me, you know. Yeah, I had a very similar first experience with my tattoo on, I think, at a bikey tattooist, like in Brisbane on the highway, just off the highway, and definitely wasn't the most comfortable experience walking in this hyper-masculine environment and just picking something off the wall. Um, I now have a massive cover-up on my back <laughs> due to that tattoo from when I was 18 years old. So, yeah, a little regret there. <laughs> Can I add something, Sam? Please. Um, something interesting. Uh, interesting that came from my research is I interviewed a lot of people who have been tattooed in the traditional parlor and then in a contemporary studio and I asked about like what is the difference, what it was like and I heard some bad stories but a lot of people, they had no complaints about the tattoo artists, they said they were polite, they were professional and everything was right but they would still describe the experience as intimidating and then when I asked them like what do you mean by intimidating, they would start saying like you know, it was a bit dark and it was loud, like heavy metal music. And it was, it smelled like cigarettes and it was all red and it had skulls. So they described everything aesthetically. So I think that this is very clear how the, the aesthetic setting, the design of the studio, it, it's, it's such a huge influence on the atmosphere that you feel. Like even if the interpersonal 
relation that you have, the, the, the relationship with the artist is not necessarily bad. You didn't have a bad experience personally. You can still feel like you don't belong to that, in that place. You don't feel like you should be in that place. It was such a, it's a really intimate personal service. And I think that's the thing about the salon is that you're having this very intimate personal service. Um, and it's sort of like, how do we have a chat through this? <laughs> you know, it's like, if, you, if you're getting your hair done or if you're getting your nails done or if you're getting a tattoo done, it's kind of like, what's the chat, you know? And it's like, well, who do I want to chat to? And it's like, well, you know, I guess in, in my scenario, it's just kind of like, well, you know, I, you know, I want to chat to someone I can have a conversation with too, you know, or, or like hear good music or whatever, you know? And it's like, you know, you think of like the hair salon, and, like, traditionally, it's just kind of like, well, you know, they've always got good music on and, like, they, they're not probably not going to be playing metal and it's probably... Actually, it probably is going to smell like cigarettes, actually, because, like, <laughs> I, I, I was married to a hairdresser for 10 years and all they did was just, like, go out the back and smoke during. It's like, uh, I love that for them, you know? Absolutely love that for them. So maybe... Yeah, maybe the, the, the smoke out in the back laneway is, like, a thing for the, for the, the staff. <laughs> Well, you've given me a perfect segue to ask Jill um, about the barbershop, another place that is traditionally a masculine environment that is changing. I remember when Captain Darling Barbershop opened um, many a year ago now. It was a real um, game changer in terms of a space for transgender non-conforming people to go to a barbershop and feel comfortable. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the barbershop um, and why you wanted to make one that was a little bit different. Um, okay, so, yeah, I was just... Uh, I, I'd experienced walking into a barbershop in the past just wanting them to, you know, fade the back of my hair up and never felt comfortable. So I wanted to create a safe space for... Um, children that want their hair cut short but, are, you know, born girls and they'd experience, like, actually going to salons and being told they weren't allowed to have a short haircut because of their gender. Um, so to create a safe space for everyone, we do a lot of um, people who are neurodiverse, so we don't have like crazy smells in there. It doesn't smell like cigarettes, even though I might sneakily <laughs> smoke outside of work. Um, definitely don't smoke at work. Um, so, yeah, just to create somewhere that doesn't feel traditional. It feels more like you're walking into maybe a lounge room. There's cool photographs on the wall. The, the most traditional thing about it is our barber chairs and everyone that comes in isn't judged on how they want their hair cut. Kids can come in and say, I want half my head shaved, like shaved and then a pattern shaved in and there's no judgment. We try and make it happen for them. Have you noticed uh, a lot more creativity in the requests um, for haircuts because of the space that, that you offer? Yeah, definitely. And young people are amazing at that. Kids have such great imaginations. So they'll come in and ask for like a unicorn haircut and you've got to try and interpret what that might be for them. Um, I had a little kid in the other day that was just like, Jill, how long have you been doing this? Like, you just read my mind. Like, he, he was trying to explain what, what he wanted done and 
was thrilled at the end, um, and I somehow managed to pull it off. Um, yeah. One of the things that I really love about Captain Darling Barbershop is um, the prices aren't gendered, and that continues to be a huge issue in um, the experience of getting your hair cut. If you're if you're read as a, a female and, and walk into a a, a female um, assumed in some way hairdresser, I mean, you could be paying two or three times as much. Um, why is that important to you to have it non-gendered in price? Um, that's something that has been important to me, like, prior to opening my salon. So every other um, salon that I've worked in has always charged, you know, a lot more for um, female identifying people to have their hair cut. Um, from the get-go, it's just like everyone gets charged the same amount. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Um, it's the time it takes. So we base things on, like, if you're having a clipper cut, it's slightly cheaper than if you're having a scissor cut, for example. Um, but everyone, no matter your gender, is charged the same. You, your barbershop still, I think, remains something of an, anonymi uh, an anomaly. Um, I've moved to West Side um, these days and I haven't necessarily found what feels like a, you know, genderqueer barbershop in the way that Captain Darling um, has. Do you feel like Captain Darling is intimately tied to the inner north of Melbourne or do you think that it could work in other places that have less of a strong kind of queer presence? Um, I definitely think, like, being in our little inner north bubble helps a lot. Um, I did consider um, opening a shop in Footscray just before oh, COVID. that's where I live. Please oh, do. Well. <laughs> <laughs> then COVID came along. Yay. Um, and I also have looked at spaces in Castlemaine and places like that. Um, I do think there's... There's definitely a market for it. There's queer people everywhere. And, yeah, I think, you know, obviously the inner north is a safe space and people can express themselves, but I do feel like there's a market for it in a lot of areas. I guess um, to all the panellists, I'd be really interested to know, I mean, we've talked about two examples, the tattoo um, parlour and the barber shop, as two traditionally gendered spaces that are um, changing, at least um, in, in some parts of the world. And um, there are obviously more feminine, um, you know, traditional spaces such as nail salons as well that seem to remain fairly gendered, um, I'm, I'm sure there are places where male-identified people can go in and have a good experience at a nail salon, but, um, you know, I certainly wouldn't necessarily, you know, just walk into anyone. I'd want to do my research first. Um, I'm really interested to know, where do you see the future of these kind of beauty salons in all of their varied um, natures in the next, say, 50 years? Do you think we'll see a more unisex approach or... Do you think that traditionally gendered spaces will remain and, and should they remain? Um, I feel like hopefully there'll be more places that are more unisex and open for everyone and everyone's welcome, no matter your gender. Um, I am not sure if there's a space for like totally cis barbershops or salons 
in my opinion, I think everyone should be made to feel comfortable wherever they go. Um, yeah, that's, that's my opinion on that. I think that more and more tattoo studios will be concerned about being welcoming to a more diverse demographic. I do still think that for a while we're going to see um, a lot of spaces that they're not exclusive but they position themselves like this is queer, like first of all, it's queer owned and we have queer tattoo artists and that like, they will attract more of a queer clientele, for example. So I feel like we, we still will have some specialized tattoo studios for a little while. I still think we're going to have the hyper-masculine traditional because it's been going on for too long. I don't think it's going away. Uh, but they maybe become less relevant. But I think that the trend is to try to be as open, as welcoming as possible. It's, it's, like it, it's, it's uh, strange watching, I think, what's happening. I think there's, there are salons, like, well, there are hair salons that are opening that are like super mask, right? Um, I, and, and I'll see them at like Ligon Street or whatever. Um, but I feel like the people that are working in them, like, uh, like, like the, they're, they're really understanding of like the diversity of clientele and also I think like the representation of people who work and cut in them as well. So it's like... You know, people are looking for a masculine experience. People are looking for, like, a feminine experience or people are looking, perhaps, you know, for, like, a, a non-binary experience. I don't know. So it's sort of like there's all of these different experiences kind of on offer, um, so to speak. Um, but I feel like, you know, like, trans men now can, like, walk into, you know, like a masculine kind of salon, so to speak, that's like with the razor sort of stuff, you know, and all that, all the sort of props that look like it's from like, you know, like the late 70s or something like that. And they'll be treated with dignity and respect and they won't be misgendered and all that kind of stuff. And I think like similarly, I think with like, like really hyper-feminine spaces as well, it's like, like for instance, like I can walk in there and like I'm not going to get like hassled or misgendered or I'm going to get respected and I'm going to get treated really well. Like I love the salon experience. I think that was like what I missed so much about lockdown was like I, when I was talking to Hannah McCann about this, I was like, oh my God, I'm totally like missing this, the, the salon experience, you know? Um, and also like, yeah, like being married to a hairdresser for 10 years, like I got freak haircuts all the time, but, and she kept cutting my hair at home and I'm like, hey babe, I, I want to come into the salon and have a time, you know? So, so I feel like that offer of, like how you can sort of like perform your gender, do your gender, whatever you know, in these spaces is sort of like part of the salon experience that I think is sort of really cute and I think will continue to be celebrated. Is there something about a ritual of care, like somebody taking care of you? Um, is that intimately linked to the experience of getting your hair cut, whether it's at a barber shop or at a um, hairdresser? Um, well, similar to what Simona just said, whenever I travel, I like to go to a hair salon and pretend that I'm not a hairdresser and get my hair cut, just so that I have the experience of being able to get my hair washed and have a consultation and do all of that. So, I, yeah, I think it, it's a nurturing 
experience, you're not often that close with someone. Like, obviously, if someone's tattooing you or you're seeing a doctor, you might be. But other than that, there's not a lot of professions where someone's going to physically touch you. I'm interested to hear about um, tattooing and the concept of care because... I suppose in some ways, you know, being poked with needles doesn't seem that caring, but um, certainly for me, I've got plenty of tattoos and I got um, tattoos on my chest after chest surgery. So I really consider those to be, um, you know, an extension of gender affirming healthcare. How do you see care and tattooing intersect? I think that another very positive thing that um, women and trans people and just the increased diverse demographics in tattooing. One good thing um, about this change is the ethics of care. So tattoo is not no longer supposed to be that thing that you earned it because you're tough. It can be something completely different. So a lot of people come to get tattoos because it's meaningful to them. It's either a story behind it or it will change the way that they relate to that specific part of their bodies. It's something that is very uh, important for the way that they express themselves. So when you acknowledge that in the way that you interact with your clients, it is a form of care. It's listening what they, where they're coming from and what that means to them and offering an experience that values how important that moment is for them and treating them with extreme uh, respect and with extreme care and making sure they're comfortable, making sure they're aware of everything that is happening, they're consenting at every moment. So this ethics of care, I think that is also uh, merit of the increased participation of the uh, more diverse community in tattooing. Simona, I know your... Um not just a musician, but also an academic who has an interest in architecture. I'd love to get your uh, theoretical take, if you're not going to hate me too much for asking this question, on the different spaces um, that we've been talking about, um, the, the tattoo parlour, the um, barber shop, the, the hair salon and the nail salon. Do you, do you see any kind of physical differences in the way these sort of buildings tend to be laid out and the, the objects that are there and how that impacts on the experience? Oh, it's like things like smells are very gendered, things like colours are very gendered, um, well, have been and continue to be. But I think it's, it's the presence of trans and gender non-conforming people, I think, in space that actually destabilises those norms. Uh, and, you know, I think that's the futurity, that's the opportunity, I think, of, like, of queering and transing space. Um, so these are some of the themes, I guess, that I've been researching in my PhD, which I just finished two and a half weeks ago. Yay! My goodness, <laughs> what a singular task that is. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so I feel like... No, it's like it's like I was at Pitch Festival on the weekend and it's like even like some of, you know, like these sort of experiences, I guess, like, you know, like these sort of personal services experiences, I guess, of kind of like, oh, okay, well, like we're out in the middle of a festival. It's like, well, how do we kind of set up like a massage parlour or like or doing nails or something like that. And it's like, so all of these things exist like in those kind of spaces, but once we sort of take them out of like, the CBD or something like that, then they automatically just like take on a completely different 
nuance to them or a, a, a really different service or like point of access as well. Um, I think another point I wanted to pick up on, which was this idea, so you were sort of talking about, I think like this idea of the legitimate business and like what is, you know, like how, how like it, it, in terms of like the way that we occupy the city and the way that we occupy the city as gender, you know, in, in a gendered way, you know, it's like there's this idea that like what is legitimate, what is risky, right? And this idea that in order to take, well, you know, like, like I guess like the bravado of the city is like a very masculine kind of thing. Whereas like for women to do the same thing, it's like, well, that's risky and that isn't considered legitimate, you know? And so there has been perhaps a change in like tattooing, but there are other salons, for instance, that are just like, you know, totally like taboo, like whether it's in terms of like sex work, for instance, with the idea of the salon. But then also like you've had sort of like a hundred years ago where you've got like a salon in the cinema or something like that. So, you know, there's like a salon space um, in the Capitol Theatre, which has been renovated, you know, like 10 years ago. And, and then one of the main spaces that they renovated is the salon. Um, but it's completely devoid of its function, you know. It's like, but that was like sort of a, you know, like a feminine space for the cinema. So, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like now um, this idea of taking risks in the city and trying to sort of take that away from this idea of gender, but also like what is a risk, you know, like it shouldn't be a risk to get a tattoo as much as it shouldn't be a risk to walk the streets at night or any of these things. And so like, yeah, it, I think this, the idea of the salon is very much related to the idea of that the city is something that has been designed for men by men for a very long time. And where do female or women or queer or, or you know, gender non-conforming spaces fit within that kind of um, idea of, you know, the, the city of men, you know, that we're trying to sort of break down. I've always had this fantasy of there being a trans and gender diverse, all-inclusive uh, salon that just does everything. Um, so, you know, barbershop, uh, you can get electrolysis, you can get... Um, you know, your nails done, you can get like absolutely everything all under one roof. All in the one chair. <laughs> can you see I something like that happening? Chair. Or um, do you think that uh, the trans and gender diverse and people that disrupt um, gender norms will change the mainstream? Which way are things going to go? Oh, I, 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 th I, I think that just simply through that destabilisation of like queering and transing space and... and um, that that will happen, but I still think that there will be this need for like wanting to lean into masculinity and wanting to lean into femininity, you know, in that sense. And it's just a question of like sort of how it's offered as a, essentially as like a retail service or as a, you know, as a point of sale. And then, but for me, it's always like queering and transing is a, is a verb, you know, it's about doing, it's not about sort of like what the space looks like or, it, it's like, how is it sort of catering, I guess, to like someone's needs? Are someone's needs being met? And so the salon is really about actually meeting someone's need in that, in that sense as well. So, so I think that's sort of the interesting part to unpack.
Are there any limitations that are placed on you as practitioners, um, you know, as a tattooist and as a um, hairdresser? Like, does industry play a role in saying what you can and can't do? Um, are there certain things that, like laws that impact on your, on the way that the space is designed, how many people you can have in the space, what kind of tools you can use, what hours you can work, or is it fairly free-flowing? Uh, from our industry, it's very free-flowing, like the legislation changes a lot from state to state, from country to country. There are some uh, specifics that like, oh, you have to have an automatic sink, and if you don't use disposable materials, you have to be the, to have the sterilization. But it's pretty open, it's pretty lax in that sense. And I feel like the new generation of tattoo artists and new studios, they are doing this by themselves. They're trying to professionalize their business as much as they can to distance themselves from the stigma. Because a few decades ago, it was common for tattoo parlors to be open from 6 p.m. overnight. And now it's like, no, it's business hours, 9 a.m. to 5. And we take uh, card payments and not just cash because we're a legitimate business. So I feel like there's a lot of effort from the studios to become legitimate businesses. But um, in terms of legislation, it's still people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> what about the hairdressing industry? Do you have, like, do you need to have the barber's chair or is that an optional thing? Um, no, you don't need to have the barber's chair. In fact, I cut... Uh, people's hair all over the salon, wherever they feel comfortable. Sometimes in the waiting chairs while they're looking out at the trams. Um, you need to have a basin with water. That's about it, really, that in terms of legally. Everything else can be set up how you want it to be. And um, what's the impact of the those two professions in terms of, like, I understand there's the tradition of apprentices, both in tattooing and in the barber shop. And I think that you have your own tools of the trade. Is that a convention of both of those spaces? Um, yeah, you definitely, like, this is Ruben over here. He is my lovely apprentice. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, you buy your tools of the trade, you go to trade school and every, you need to provide that yourself, yeah. Yes, and in tattooing uh, is the same, like the traditional way to enter the industry is apprenticeship and then you have to acquire your own equipment and be that. And it's interesting because the apprenticeship model for so long has prevented a lot of women, trans and queer people to enter the tattoo industry because, of course, that man with a very traditional idea of what a tattoo artist or what tattoo is, he's going to pick someone like him to continue his business. So it was a very gate-capped industry for so long because of the system of apprenticeship. And it's interesting to see that nowadays you have other options. A lot of people are learning online, which has a lot of problems as well because it's a very hands-on thing. Like, it has the downsides as well, but people are finding ways around the traditional apprenticeship to make it a more inclusive space as well. And especially considering um, the tasks in a tattoo studio, I feel like the tasks that an apprentice starts doing when they just started the studio, they're quite gendered as well. So you'll go to a studio that has like five male tattoo artists and you're the female apprentice. They're going to put you to clean the floors, to wash someone else's equipment. They're going to put you up for those tasks that are already very heavily gendered. And it's very hard for you to progress past 
those tasks and prove, you have to prove yourself triple to actually say that you're, you're worth of their attention. So it's a very um, complicated scheme as well. I noticed that the uh, microphone for the audience has put up over there. So I hope that some questions are percolating in the audience over there. Um, so if you do have a question for any or all of the panel, please um, don't be shy. Uh, come up to the mic and um, let them know what you're thinking. While you're thinking about your questions, I might just ask you all, what's your dream salon experience? Have you had a good one? Have you never had a good one? What would it look like in any, in any uh, area? I need to think on that. When you, when you went to one in, a, in another city, what, 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 what's your most memorable overseas salon experience? Uh, my most memorable overseas one was in Paris and obviously there was a language barrier but, you know, that's what magazines are for and we flicked through and, and he did a great job. I loved it. I loved the experience. Um, I've also had some ones that weren't so good, like in Brisbane where the owner actually called me about a month later and said, how was your haircut experience? And I was like, oh, actually, well, I'm really a hairdresser and it... Was regretting that decision quite quickly to, to go through with that haircut. Wow. <laughs> that would be awkward feedback back. moment. <laughs> I guess that's one of the, uh, the easier things about being a, uh, somebody who works at a barbershop than a tattooist, I guess. Yes, that's right. Hair does grow back. Um, Danielle, have you had a dream um, experience at the salon in any area um, at all? You know, could it nail, hair, anything else? I think that just um, a place that I would feel comfortable being there for the amount of time. Because we talk a lot about gender here, but there's also other factors that influence that. Like the ideal welcoming experience can take different shapes depending on the people. So a lot of places are intimidating because like, oh, this is too posh, this is too fancy. I don't know how to behave here. I don't know how to sit. So I feel like finding this dream experience is really finding people like you. I think this idea of identification, like seeing yourself in that place, it's very powerful. And for me, it would just be chill. Everything that smells good, feels good, temperature is good. I, I feel like this very sensorial part of the experience is important. Well, yeah, yeah, I feel like I, 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 something that like transcends, I think, all of those stereotypes, I think, and sort of takes it into like just a really awesome experience that you're having with the person who's, you know, like giving your haircut or like, I, I remember like I, like I got this stick and poke um, from this woman, you know, like in... Um, you know, in Los Angeles off Sunset Boulevard in, a, in the back of a sort of art studio, like, you know, and, and that in itself is like a wonderful sort of couple of sentences to put together as like this idea of a kind of a salon that's not the traditional salon, but it's like she invited me into her creative space and I just told her a story and she drew the story and said, do you want this? And then all of a sudden I've got this on my leg and I'm just like... Okay, so the salon's about narrative. The salon's about 
I guess, like connecting with this person who's, you know, like, you know, you know, doing something, but it's very creative. Like it's, it's, a, it's, it's not just like a personal service in that sense. Like it's actually like a super creative thing that you kind of walk away and for like the rest of your life or for two weeks, like it's part of you. And so if you can walk away with a really like, you know, sick memory of somebody, then I think that's a really beautiful thing. And the salon kind of moves with you. That's lovely. And, um, yeah, I certainly have very fond memories of uh, hairdressers and tattooists. And you, you certainly do remember the, the experience that you had um, in many ways more than the – well, at least more than the haircut. Maybe not <laughs> Maybe not the tattoo. That stays forever. But, like, the personality of that person is just like, wow, you know. I notice we've got a question a questioner over there. Please take us away. Hi, I'm kind of interested in the intersection between the private space and the public space because I've known Jill for years, so I've had my hair cut at Jill's house um, and money doesn't change hands, it's a different relationship. The same with the stick and poke conversation, you know, kick-ons become stick and pokes. What do you think is the difference between um, those personal services that happen in private spaces and those that happen in public spaces where they become more transactional? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't be sorry. Um, yeah, so years ago I did just start my own little salon from home when I was tired of working for other people and it was really great because I just ended up doing a lot of friends and existing clients so I wasn't inviting strangers into my home and a lot of the time we would people would actually forget to pay, like... If they were supposed to pay, it was just like, cool, bye. And <laughs> I was like, oh. Um, and I didn't feel quite comfortable going, hey, I actually provided a service here. Like, can you fix me up for that? Um, and, yeah, I think, like, I love having my salon space now and that being separate from my home. I really try hard not to do people's hair outside of my working hours anymore, which is hard to do sometimes, but it's very important to separate the two, I think, for me now. Everyone pays cash? Uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on the nature of uh, services um, and any, any differences between sort of fee-for-service tattoos versus your friends giving them to you at 2am? Or 6am. <laughs> I don't know when these things happen. I do I do have a stick and poke tattoo on my leg that my niece gave me during lockdown. But I don't think that's the most typical example of the uh, classic stick and poke. It's more common than you imagine, though. <laughs> I've seen some rippers, like, at kick-ons from, I mean... Wow, I mean, I wouldn't get those on. I would, I wouldn't get them tattooed on on my body. I'm just, I was like two hours later, just going like, oh my god. I know one time, one time, someone like this person that was doing like stick and pokes came up to me, and you know, it, it was sunrise, and we were a bit cooked, and they were like, maybe I wanted to do. I've got, I've got this great idea for a stick and poke for you. I feel like. I want to draw you as Atlas holding up the earth. And I just went, fuck off. <laughs> Is that my trauma? 
So, like, you've just got to be capable of making very good decisions when people come up to you like that. Um, and I think that was a very interesting question because when we talk about tattooing, for example, becoming mainstream, that's the other side of the coin as well. It's good because it's now a space where more people can participate and in different ways. But at the same time, it gets appropriated by capitalism, so it becomes a business. So it's the two sides of the same coin. So there's definitely now more tattoo studios that are very transactional, very commercial, and you don't necessarily have to ask your client's name. It's the person sits there and you just buzz them and buy, pay, buy. Um, but you do have a lot of other tattoo studios that are more personal or more private. It all depends on what kind of experience that you're looking for. And that's why I think that the multiplicity of tattoo studios around uh, comes to be very interesting. Because for a lot of people, they, they are doing that for Instagram. They want to be tattooed for the famous tattoo artist. They want to post it. Like, they're not that concerned about the personal aspect of the experience as much of the aesthetic aspect of the experience. So for those people, there's more transactional tattooing. It works. It's what they're looking for. Other people, on the other hand, they want the private studio where they can feel safe, where they can feel that they can have a relationship with the tattoo artist. So there's a whole different experience. So it really depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, safety in a salon. I would say that's probably my 10 out of 10 biggest box ticking exercise. Just touching on people doing it for their social media account, I do have, I'd say people in their early 20s come in and they're like, hang on, I've just got to take this like photo for TikTok and they do all through the stages of the haircut and it's all for like a TikTok video. So. I guess, you know, it's a good way for them to promote my business as well. Do you factor that into your fee? <laughs> no, I just steal their photos and post them on my Instagram. I've got a 10% for TikTok. I, th I think you should definitely do that. I mean, yeah, it's a, huge, it's a huge thing, isn't it? I mean, I know every time I have ultimately gotten a tattoo, I've definitely looked up the tattooist on Instagram first and, you know, that that is basically how the business works. And I know you, um, Captain Darling has an Instagram that I was looking through, um, which was a very fun time. Is, is that a huge part of the business for both of the salon experiences now? And does it impact on the, the way you, that you do business? Um, I think for my salon in particular, because of the services we offer and the no judgment that we have approach to everything. <laughs> um, so yeah, we do rely on things like Instagram and Facebook and we also rely on people mentioning us as, you know, a, a, a barbershop that will do whatever you want and you won't be judged on that. You can have whatever haircut you want and it's all good. Yeah, I think that Instagram is more important than I would like it to be. <laughs> um, I built my portfolio on Instagram. I reached my clients through Instagram. I was recruited to work at the studio that I'm at by Instagram. Like, everything happens on Instagram. And that's the good side that you reach people who will not meet otherwise. So I have clients who travel from other places of Australia to come to Melbourne to tattoo with me, and that's awesome. Uh, but then the downside is the pressure to produce content like we're not content producer, we're artists, but we still have that pressure. Um, 
a lot of expectations. Like a lot of the tattoos that we post on Instagram, they're fresh, they're just made. And fresh tattoos look different from heel tattoos. So you create that expectation on people who don't understand tattoos. Like, oh, it's always going to look fresh. It's not. One month later, it's going to look different. So there's a lot of this Instagrammability of tattoos that kind of create unrealistic expectations that I feel it's kind of complicated um, for business as well. But as a way to reach people, I... I'm still looking forward to finding new alternatives, but it's the way to go. Um, there's still an empty microphone down there, by the way, if anybody's got a burning question or we're even taking comments, um, which I wouldn't always say, but I'm very, very interested in hearing. Please. Do you think in your years of being around the sort of, um, these sort of salon spaces that that whole Instagram thing and that whole public-private thing, it's taken that intimacy that and that kind of connection that you get between, um, like, artist or hairdresser or whatever in, and client? Sorry, did you say taken away from that or...? Yeah, like, do you think over the years through with social media and... Um, that kind of voyeuristic way that people kind of like are doing a TikTok video, does it take the intimacy away from that haircut that you're doing and that connection that you find probably rewarding in your career? Um, I feel like I still have really great connections with my clients. I, like most of my clients, uh, return clients and we're booked out for a very long time. So that relationship doesn't really change with social media. I do find Instagram a little bit anxiety-inducing sometimes, like people messaging via Instagram for appointments and, like, via Facebook. Close your inbox. You know, I'm just like... Do it. <laughs> I did You it. can do that? It's the best thing I'll teach <laughs> oh you later. God. Okay, we'll talk after. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's just so many ways people can contact you for appointments and it's really overwhelming and I'm... You know, like my partner will tell you, I'm constantly just feel like I'm on my phone having to get back to people. And, yeah, I want to just throw my phone at the wall sometimes when I get home after work. But in terms of, yeah, relationships, like when I'm in the salon, that's my favourite my favorite time, having those conversations with clients and forming those relationships and maybe making people feel really happy when they leave. I fully agree. Everything. Exactly. Everything. <laughs> but also, I feel like the magazine's not so much a feature in a salon anymore. Like back in the 80s, it was just like magazines, 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 magazines. And now it's just like, is everyone sort of like on the Insta? So is it, is it like your clients sort of like become representational of your work rather than someone coming in and being like, I want to look like Jerry Hall that just did like a runway in, in that music video with George Michael. Like that doesn't happen anymore? Yeah, there's a no Jennifer Anderson haircut request <laughs> anymore. <laughs> um, showing my age there. Um, I just showed mine, so... <laughs> Definitely, like, people will show you Pinterest or Instagram for a photo that they want rather than a magazine. Um, but then it's like, it's like someone in our community kind of, like, becomes the influencer rather than, like, you know, like, a supermodel from, like, a George Michael video, for instance. Yeah, like, often people will show me photos of my own 
Instagram, like haircuts, and it's like, we well, want that haircut. So you're kind of re- recreating that same haircut a lot of the time, but that's okay because I know it's a Captain Darling haircut. <laughs> um, yeah, no, ta- take us away with your uh, final question. Look, I'm just can't be stopped. I'm also interested in how you use your bodies to do work on other people's bodies. So I know that being a hairdresser is, can be quite taxing, uh, really bad for your back, a lot of RSI. Is it like that as a tattoo artist? How does it feel to be providing a service that promotes pleasure and allows other people to get closer to themselves but yet also can be draining and take away from yourself sometimes? I feel like we don't realise how close our jobs are because it's very, very similar. It's physically demanding to be there holding the machine several hours leaning over the person. Um, so it can be exhausting and just as like hairdresser says, there's a lot of emotional labor to be done as well to make that a comfortable space and to have the rapport because people do feel vulnerable and comfortable to share and overshare and all these things while they're getting tattooed. And it's something that you have to navigate. So there is a lot of work. And when you say body work, I feel like for for me, one of my concerns when I became a tattoo artist was like, I need to have the right type of tattoos, like to have aesthetic credibility. Like I want to have tattoos on my body that represents also the kind of work that I do. I want to, it's not going to be my portfolio because I hardly can tattoo myself. Most of placements I can't. But... Um, I want me. I want myself, like my presentation, to communicate what my interests are and what they can expect from my work and the experience with me as well. So I feel like it's probably the same with hairdressers. Like you having nice hair in the specific way says a lot about what you do. Yeah, definitely. And um, I feel like I just some train of thought, but. Um, <laughs> Oh, it is very physically taxing. So I get home from work and my back's sore. Um, Unfortunately, about a year ago, I shattered my humerus bone and had to have surgery. So by the end of... I have a big, lovely scar here on my shoulder now. So by the end of the week, on a Friday, I can barely lift my arm. And it's very exhausting. Uh, Socially, I feel quite drained as well because you're having conversations, like we take half an, half an hour appointments, you're literally having conversations for like eight hours a day. So it's hard to, you know, get home from work and then be like, oh, cool, now I want to go out and like socialise and see my friends. It's, it's kind of like get home and watch maths. <laughs> I, I truly don't know how you do it. Um, I feel drained after having a 30-minute conversation with uh, my uh, barber. So, and certainly after this event, I'll be, uh, yeah, watching some TV at home um, for the next few hours. Um, we've come to the end of our session tonight. Thank you so much to all of our panellists and please, um, a round of applause. <laughs> and thank you all for coming. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.